you have no constitutional rights. None at all, I'm sorry to say. You never had them. Let me explain. A few years ago, I wrote a book. It was called, Jesus is involved in politics. Why aren't you? Why isn't your church? This was kind of controversial and very scary for many pastors. So I had to write a kinder, gentler version. I called it 40 Days Towards a More Godly Nation. After all, who wouldn't want a more godly nation, right? And 40 Days, you know, Rick Warren. Between Rick Warren and myself, we've sold over 10 million copies. <laughs> he sold most of them. Anyway, uh, if, by the way, if you want uh, any of the slides or the information that we talk about today, you can get them at the back table there. We actually have all, all this in some detail. Uh, you can actually teach it, and, and I'm hoping by the end of this, you will actually want to go out and teach this to your friends and to your small groups. But let me uh, get, go back to what led me to write these books. I was born in Ghana. Now, some of you guys are thinking that's a town in Texas. Uh, actually, it's not. It's a uh, country right off the uh, west coast of Africa. Now, in uh, Ghana, they speak a lot of different languages. I never learned any of them, actually. Uh, but my parents were Christian Indians. Um, and now a lot of you think, well, are there that many Christians in India? No, there aren't that many, but they're only 3%. But 3% of a billion is quite a few. So that... Uh, that actually makes up for it. But now, my parents actually, um, our church, they, they belong to a church called the Marthoma Church. And the Marthoma Church dates its ancestry back to St. Thomas, who came there in 51 AD. So, funny joke, uh, when I uh, first met my in-laws, uh, you know, Americans, and um, my father-in-law is a pastor, and he says, how long has your family been Christians? And I cheekily said, a lot longer than yours. So, anyway. Uh, I, I was born in Ghana, but then I grew up in Jamaica, Ethiopia, India, Yemen, and Sudan. And I know you're thinking, but Neil, Sudan is a town in Texas. And you're absolutely correct. It is a town in Texas, right there off Highway 84. You know, you take a left of the Dairy Queen, and there it is. But I assure you, this is not the Sudan I grew up in. Uh, the Sudan I grew up in was a Sudan in where? East Africa. You guys know where Sudan is? Almost everybody knows where Sudan is. When I first came to the States, nobody knew where Sudan was. They're like, what? And now, of course, it's been in the news. Uh, I grew up there speaking, and now, of course, you know the Sudan is where the White Nile and the Blue Nile live, so I can uh, uh, cross, so I can, almost, I can honestly say I grew up in the Nile. And I used to speak, I'll wait. I can honestly say I grew up in denial. Okay. I was like, what? <laughs> Uh, I speak a little fast. You know, I grew up actually speaking a little bit of Arabic, and then when I got to the States, I started uh, watching Star Trek in English, and that was the end of my Arabic, and so uh, I forgot all of it. Now, you're probably wondering why I traveled so much, or well, was I a spy? No, I was a baby, so I couldn't have been a spy. But my dad, what about him? Was he a spy? No, he is actually a professor in physics, and he would travel all over the world to all these different countries, and uh, I, I want to focus on one country that I spent uh, my college years in, I had the fortune of going to uh, uh, the fortunate fortune of going to Yemen for my college years, and uh, Yemen is where it's a Yemen Arab Republic. It's a Sharia law. It's under Sharia law, so I know what it likes. It's like to live under Sharia law. And my dad had been working there for six years. I had gone to school in India, came back, and was going to college there. And um, I was 18 years old, 
And I was dreaming about coming to America because I'd seen all these movies and all these beautiful women in America. And I said, I've got to come to America to, because it's the land of my destiny. It's the land of beautiful women. I've got to come here. And, and I was right because I found the most beautiful woman in the world and I married her and I only could have found her here. Uh, those aren't our kids. Those are the brides, uh, sorry, the flower girls. Uh, here are our kids. We have, uh, that's Alistair and then we have we're kind of slow today. I don't know why. Somebody could hit the... There we go. So we have three kids, and that's Alistair. He's very active in the... Uh, that's Alistair. He's very active in the pro-life business. And uh, uh, he's, uh, that's him outside Planned Parenthood with his throwback Thursday uh, onesie. Anyway, so, so I was here in Yemen, and I wanted to come to America, but a professor's pay in America is just not enough to pay for college in America. But my dad said, look, we have some savings. We'll, uh, we'll see what we can do. As long as I'm working here, you'll be fine. You know, but uh, you know, you, but you got to help your brothers and sisters, which I ended up having to do. But uh, I remember the first time I tried to come here. We applied. We got the permission to come. We got the visa. I got, the, um, I got admission to college. And uh, I remember that afternoon when dad came home from work. It was about two months before I was supposed to come. And he came and sat us all down, and he said that his contract with the government of Yemen had been terminated. Now, we found out later that a fellow professor had committed suicide. And when the police went into the professor's bedroom, they found a Bible with my father's name on it. Now, my dad was a well-known professor, and he had students who had graduated and become politicians, and so he was well-connected. So he wasn't thrown into prison. Uh, and when they met with him, my, his friends said, you know, we can save your life, but we can't save your job. So in effect, my dad was telling me that because a fellow worker had been given a Bible by him, we had to leave the country, and my dreams of coming to America at that time were shattered completely. And we didn't know when it would happen again. Why? Because, you see, in, in Yemen, it is illegal to give someone who's not a Christian a Bible. You see, in Islamic countries, you don't have any unalienable rights. The government gives you those rights. You certainly don't have the right to talk to others about religion or politics, and you don't have the right to give a Muslim a Bible. But where do these rights come from? In Yemen, the government grants you your rights. The right to talk to about others about religion is not one of those rights. right? But lest you think it would never happen in America, you go, well, this is America, Neil, that would never happen. Well, here in Philadelphia, a 70-year-old African-American great-grandmother was arrested for ethnic intimidation because she and 10 other Christians had the audacity to stand on the side of a gay parade and preach the gospel. Now, it doesn't matter where you stand on that issue, you should be able to, what? Object to something you disagree with. These peaceful men and women faced 47 years in prison and fines of $90,000 each. And this was a real, probable, in fact, depending on who the judge was, right? Now, they got away with it, but a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona, was sentenced to jail for 10 days and three years of probation. Why? Because a judge forbade their church bells to chime on Sundays, and he let it do. He let it. And now, it's important to realize that the church bells were lower in volume than an ice cream truck, which is allowed to chime any time, any day. Not to be outdone, the town of Gilbert, Arizona, outlawed Bible studies. Um, and made them. And I go, well, Neil, this is, <laughs> those are exceptions to the rule. <laughs> Surely it's getting better. No, it's actually getting worse, right? Now colleges have to allow, if they take any um, funding from student loans to the government or anything like that, or scholarships, 
they have to allow what? Same, any gender bathrooms. Here's a site called uh, religioushostility.org. If you go there, there's over 600 listings of, of hostility against Christians and pastors and, and businesses and people. But what rights are we talking about? Here's the government coming in, stepping over our rights. What ta- rights are we talking about? Do our rights come from government? Let me ask that one more time because some of you guys weren't sure. Do our rights come from government? No. Where do, if rights, let me ask you this. If rights came from government, what would be the consequence of that? They can take them away, right? If rights came from government, then governments could what? Legally, ethically, morally, and justly take away those same rights. They gave them to you. After all, they can take them away, right? It's arbitrary. We decide what you have. In Germany, they decide Jews had no rights. So rights can't come from the government. Okay, well, let's see. Uh, can I give myself rights? Can I go around saying, I'm emperor, you have to bow down towards me? No? Can I? No? Why? Because I don't have authority over you. I can't come and say you should. In fact, I don't have authority over you to say anything. I can't say you have to treat that person properly. I can't say you have to treat that person equally. I can't do that because I have no authority over you. Okay, well, what about the masses? Can we all vote? Can we all get together and say, okay, we're going to vote to give the Jews rights? Can we do that? Can I choose the masses? Some people think that. They think of the, if the masses get together. But the problem with that is it's dangerous for us to think that the masses can give us rights. Why? Because if the masses can, by the way, when the masses give people rights, when the masses vote to make something happen, the founding fathers called that a democracy or a mobocracy. You go, wait a minute, I thought we were a democracy. No, folks, we're not a democracy. We're a republic. And it's important that you understand the difference. I don't have time to go over that today, but you should go find the difference. We are a republic. But if the mob, if the mobocracy decides to give you rights or decides to take away rights from you, then you don't have rights. In fact, here's the question. If anybody says, well, I think the masses should choose to elect who gets rights, then you go, well, well, before the 1800s, there was no society in the world that thought slaves should have rights. Did that mean that slaves did not have rights? Or did it rather mean that they always had those rights? But those rights were what? Constantly being violated. And it wasn't until the majority in the state recognized those existing rights that justice was restored. See that? The slaves always had rights. They just weren't able to exercise them. So we can't get our rights from the masses. So where do we get our rights from? Do we get it from the Constitution? Remember I started that. I said, you have no constitutional rights. Why? Because the Constitution can't give you rights. Because the Constitution was written by the people or the government or whoever. It can't give you rights. You never had rights. The Constitution never gave you rights. It just told you where they came from. In fact, the Declaration of Independence is what tells you. And this is the, tomorrow is the date of the, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, right? Although I think some people argue that was really the seventh, but we won't go into that. Okay. Where did they and our rights come from? Well, what, is it, what does the Declaration of Independence say? It says, we what? Hold these truths. Come on, there we go. All men are created equal, that they are endowed by their what? Government? People? Themselves? By their creator with certain unalienable rights. Amongst these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see, the only person who could give rights to people or force one person in Africa to give rights to another person in India, to give rights to another person in America, to give rights to another person in wherever, is somebody who had authority over all those people. So the only person who could give you rights is 
the creator of all mankind who has authority. Now, by the way, you might think, wow, Jefferson, he was a smart guy. He came up with this idea. No, folks, Jefferson is a smart guy, but he didn't come up with this idea. Where did this idea come from? It didn't come from the Enlightenment. A lot of people, oh, it came from the Enlightenment. It didn't come from the Enlightenment. Where did it come from? It came from pastors preaching in pulpits like this for 200 years before the Declaration of Independence was written, saying what? All these pastors wrote again and again that rights did not come from the government, didn't come from the masses. It came from only one person, and that was God. In fact, way back when, you can go back to the signing of the Magna Carta, in 1215, drafted by Archbishop Stephen Langton, and he says rights do not come from the king. So rights, what, come from, only come from the creator. Now, here's the problem, though. If the rights come from, the, if our rights come from the creator, creator equal unalienable rights. Now, it's also important to understand which creator, right? The Muslim creator does not give you rights. The Muslim creator only gives male Muslims rights. The Hindu creator doesn't give anybody rights. So it's important that you understand which creator gives you rights. There's only one creator in the history of, of mankind that gives people's rights, and that is what? The true creator, the creator that we believe is true, and that is the Christian creator. So it's important that you understand the foundational basis of our rights come from a Christian, Judeo-Christian principles. Now this is very important because if I take that creator away, what happens if I remove that creator? What happens to our rights? There are no unalienable rights. And this is why it's very dangerous to have an atheist or a secular humanist or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist in what? In the office of power who are making these decisions because their fundamental worldview does not include what? Unalienable rights. Okay, so rights come from a creator, but what then? Why do I need a government? Why, what is the purpose of this government? Why, why can't we just do our own, or do everything ourselves? What is the purpose of government? You guys remember? It's to secure our rights. Government's purpose is what? To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Now, are rights a moral issue? Right? When you violate someone's rights, is that a moral issue? Yes. So let's follow this through. You can't really separate religion from politics. Why? Because you can't separate politics from lawmaking. Right? Politics, laws, that's why they're there, right? Now, but rights are a moral issue. You can't, that means you can't separate lawmaking from morality. Do you see that? Now, if you can't separate lawmaking from morality, then the church has to be the conscience of the government. Why? Because the government is dealing with moral issues. You take the government, you can take the church out of government, you get the church out of the picture, and guess what? You end up making immoral, secular, humanist, atheistic, Muslim-type decisions in your laws. Now, wait a minute, wait, you go, no, 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 Neil, but, but what, uh, you want a theocracy? No, I don't want a theocracy. I definitely don't want a theocracy. Why don't I want a theocracy? Quite simply, because, you know, the charismatics don't want a Baptist government. The Presbyterians don't want a Baptist government. The Assembly of God don't want a Baptist government. Right? The Methodists don't want a Baptist government. For crying out loud, the Baptists don't want a Baptist government. Right? We don't want a church government. We don't want a Baptist government. We don't want a Christian government. We want Christians in government. See the difference? We don't want a Christian government. We want Christians in government. We don't want a church government. We want a moral government. And since we want a moral government, who better to instruct the world on moral issues than what? Pastors 
and Christians who understand the moral values, who understand the moral issues, who understand the connection between God's laws and man's laws. And in line with that, the Bible actually is very clear. It says, what kind of person are we supposed to elect? The Bible actually in great detail, in fact, the foundation of our republic is based on this passage in Moses. I mean, written by Moses in Exodus 18.21. Um, Moses is talking to his, his father-in-law, Jethro, who's become a, Christ, uh, become a, a believer, not a Christian. Um, and Jethro says this to Moses. He says, you should select from all the people competent men who reverently fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. You shall place these over people as leaders, officials of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And this was the basis for the Republican form of government here in America. You elect anyone else and you get pain and suffering. We've seen that in the Bible. We've seen that in our lives. You elect anyone who doesn't meet this. And you are going to have pain and suffering. Now, you go, okay, well, fine, that makes sense. The Bible talks about this. And most people didn't know that. They didn't realize that our whole Republican form of government. By the way, that has been copied by Many other countries, but not to the point, because they don't have the Bible as their sole, sole basis. Okay, so, but we're going to play a game here, because I talked about rights, right? I talked about um, the right. Now, what is the right? Uh, give me, shout out some of them. Right to what? Bear arms. Bear arms. What else? Freedom of speech, right? These are rights, but, but some people get confused. What about health care? Education. Uh, okay, well... It, See, this is a problem because some people, on especially liberal types, think, "Oh, yeah, this is imp- this is right." And 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 many of my liberal friends don't understand the difference. So I spend a lot of time trying to explain this. And so let me explain this so you guys can explain it to others. I mean, there are many. I have a lot of socialist Christian friends. In fact, my whole family in India are communists. Okay, now go figure. Okay, I've come from a long line of communists in India. Christian communists, note you, all Christians, fundamental Christians. In fact, my father, my uncle was. So Christian that the communists wouldn't accept him, and he was so communist that the Christians wouldn't accept him. So he ended up being the chairman of the World Council of Churches, which is a communist Christian organization, or socialist Christian organization. Anyway, we'll, we'll, no, no, we'll talk about that another day. Anyway, so let's play a game. Now, he would think that what rights are, healthcare is a right, yeah? Um, good education is a right. A, a, a well-paying job is a right. Okay, so we're going to play a game. I'm going to flash something on the screen. And, and you tell me if it's a right or something else, okay? So if it's a right, it's going to be on your left. Oh, okay, never mind. Anyway, so if it's a right, it's on your left. If it's, uh, and if it's something else, we're going to put it on the right. So I'm going to flash something up there. You tell me if it's a right. Is this a right? Okay, folks, it's a gun. It's not a right. Um, what is the right? The right is to own that gun. The right is to bear arms. That's a right. You see, you have the right to own a gun, but you're not entitled to a gun. Get your own gun. Okay? Now, let's look at this one. Is this a right? Freedom of speech, that's a right. Yeah? Some of you guys are like, well, he played a trick on us last time. (laughs) That is a right, folks. But what about this, a printing press? Is that a right? Are you entitled to a printing press? No, get your own printing press, right? Go buy your own printing press. Go go spend money, work, labor, get your own printing press. But you don't have a right to a website. You don't have a right to a podcast. You don't have, you know, you don't have a right to those things. You have to get your own. But you are entitled 
to be able to do that. You have, your right is to do that. You're not entitled to a podcast. Okay, let's keep going. Here's a whole list of things. You tell me if these are rights or something else. A home, home ownership, a job, health care, food, clothing, education. Are these rights or something else? Okay, trick question there. There is one right in there. Do you see it? Home ownership, exactly. Home ownership is a right. The rest are something else. Why? Because you have the right to own your own home, but you are not entitled to be given a home. Now, here's, let me clarify. They go, okay, that, um, that's starting to make sense. Let me clarify. Many people confuse rights with goods or services. Rights are something that God gives you. Okay? Like the freedom of speech. The right to own your own home. Goods and services are the product of somebody's labor. So if somebody has to work to produce it, that becomes a good or a service. Now think about this. If the right is dependent on somebody's labor, where do you get that right? For instance, if you say you have a right to health care, where do you get that health care from? Do you go out and enslave a bunch of doctors and force them to give you health care? Right? Now, in the old days, farmers thought they had the right to free labor. So they went out and got a bunch of slaves and forced them to give them free labor. But that wasn't a right, was it? They're not entitled to that. So anytime you think of something, you have to understand the difference. In fact, the right to bear arms is not the right to be given a free farm. The right to a printing press is the right to free speech is not the right to be given a radio station. And by the way, the, by the, way the constitutions that have a Bill of Rights that include health care and a home and a good paying job, these are all communist and socialist uh, constitutions, and we know how well they've ended up, right? And I'll show you that in a few minutes. But what's interesting is this, and this is how you have to think about it. Rights, so you have the right to your own, the fruits of your own labor, but you don't have the right to anybody else's labor. Why? Because that is called what? Stealing. Okay, now, the, uh, the reason that we don't want to do this is because anytime you assign goods as rights, goods that are granted as rights require you to enslave men fiscally, that's financially, or physically, to ensure a continuous supply of the goods that you've promised to others. See that? Now, the sad thing is most Americans know, don't know the difference between rights and goods. And this is very important for you to remember this and exercise this. So whenever you're doing a vote, whenever you're voting for someone, whenever you're voting for something, you think about it and you go, is this a right or is this a good? Or will this person assign goods as though they're rights and therefore bankrupt us all? Why? Because here's the reason why it doesn't work. Anytime you have assigned somebody else, somebody else has assigned your hard work, you're not encouraged to work very hard. And they're not encouraged to take only as much as they need. But here's how socialism works. Socialism is based on this concept. Come on. Can you advance the next slide? Sometimes it gets stuck. I don't know why. Okay. In socialism, all men have to work as much as they can and take as little as they need, right? This is the basic concept of socialism. You're a healthy person, you work hard. You're a sick person, you work as little as, as much as you can, but you can't a lot, right? And then you're a healthy person, you eat only what you need. You're a sick person, you eat only what you need, right? So this is the basic idea. But ever heard about sin nature man? Ever heard of the seven deadly sins? Sloth, glut, gluttony, gluttony, greed, right? What happens with that? What happens with that is this is what happens in our sin nature. All men will work what? As, not as much as they can, but as little as they need, and take what? Not as little as they need, but as much as they can. So all socialist nations end up being what? Bankrupt. 
And people go hungry. And in fact, if you want to look at a, so, a great example of a socialist nation that has so many resources, more resources than America, they have oil, they have all these things, is Venezuela. And people are starving in Venezuela. Why? Because they have a socialist government that thinks that this concept will work. In fact, people go, well, no, Neil, you can't take Venezuela. You have to take Sweden. Okay, let's take Sweden. Do you know if, if you took Sweden and put it up there on a scale against, uh, if you can advance to the next slide, and you put that up on a scale, you will notice that Sweden, there's Sweden in green, and these are all the U.S. states. Sweden is poorer than all the states in America except for the lowest 12. And the United Kingdom is poorer than all the states in America. It just doesn't work, folks. Now, here's the deal, though. If we abandon socialism, and, and the thought in many of your and minds are, and, and most of my liberal friends are, right? We all work in, in the Valley, and most of our friends are probably liberal, right? Most of our neighbors are liberal. Um, so the, in their mind is the thought, well, Neil, if, if you start doing this, who will take care of the poor? You can't have the poor starving. I mean, there'll be riots in the streets. How, how do you take care of the poor? Well, and the Bible does say, remember James says, true religion is taking care of what? Widows and orphans. So we can't just abandon that. We can't say, well, we're, just, you know, we're, we're not going to take care of them. But the problem is when Jesus, when the Bible says the poor should take care of the widows and the orphans, and the story of the, of the, of the Good Samaritan, people go, well, Jesus must have been what? A socialist. And you get people walking in the streets like this. Come on. Next slide. <laughs> I don't know what is going on with my Mac back there. So people think that Jesus was a socialist. But... Here's the problem. It all starts with the confusion about the Good Samaritan story. So I want to spend some time reminding you what the Good Samaritan story was. I think my batteries must be dead or something. But okay, let's, if, um, go back. Yeah. There, there should be some spare batteries up there. If you could bring it up here, I'll trade them out. So the question here is, and let's, let's talk about the Good Samaritan story. Jesus, um, was sitting there and he, he tells a story about the Good Samaritan and, um, he says there was a guy walking down the street over to Jericho, and he, uh... <clears throat> okay, so um, so he, he's walking down the street, and all of a sudden, he gets beat up by a bunch of uh, bandits, right? The bandits beat him up, take his money, uh, leave him for dead. Two politicians walk by. The politicians, we'll get to that later. Two politicians walk by, ignore him completely. Right? Finally, a Samaritan, the guy that everybody hates, walks by, picks him up, takes him to the inn. He goes to the innkeeper, and the inn tells the innkeeper, uh, Mr. Innkeeper, please take care of this man. And uh, here's some money to take care of him. And when he's better, I will come back, and I want you to pay the rest of it. No? That's not the story? When I come back, I'm going to bring the IRS with guns, and they're going to force you to pay the rest of it. When I come back, I'm going to bring some goons with some big clubs. They're going to beat everybody in the surrounding community and force them to pay for it. That's not the story, is it? Where did the story go? When I come back, who will pay for it? I will pay for it. Why? See, Jesus didn't say you uh, force your neighbors to pay for it. He says you pay for it. He says you give to the poor, not force your neighbor to. Jesus didn't say, it's your job to make sure everybody else gives to the poor, right? He didn't say, you know, um, I think the best way for charity to work is for you to tax everybody and then force everybody to give to your favorite charity. No, he didn't. He said, it's not the state's take, um, job to take care of the poor. It is 
your job. It's the church's job to take care of the poor. And like the Good Samaritan story, people have been doing that. They've been doing that year after year. So for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been doing that. If you look at Florence Nightingale, Florence Nightingale's whole thing was to take care of the poor, right? Uh, take care of, and she invented nursing, if you will. She actually invented the concept of nursing. And then, of course, growing up in Africa, I would see all these missions all over the place. This isn't, so there's something wrong with the thing. There must be something interfering with it. Um, if you guys could unplug your remote so it's not sending out signals, maybe. I don't know. Okay. So the, it was the Christians who pioneered most of the first missionary hospitals and things like that. In fact, I, so I think the church can go back to doing this. Now, I have to tell you a small story, though. But I was on the radio about a few, it was like three, four years ago, and uh, it was a liberal show, and the liberal host had me on, and, and all these liberals started calling and beating up on me. They said, oh, here's a guy, let's beat up on him. So they started beating up on him. And after the first 20 minutes, I was only supposed to be on 20 minutes, the host says, well, you know, I've had so many phone calls, can you stay on another 20 minutes? I said, sure, I said another 20 minutes. I ended up being there all three hours, and he canceled all his other guests. Why? Because he was having fun, people calling in, beating up on me. Well, after the second hour, some conservatives said, hey, there's a, there's a conservative on this show, we should call in. So they started calling in and beating up on him. So that was fun. But anyway... So halfway through the beat up on Neil phase, I'm getting these calls, right? And this lady, and I'm saying, I've talked about how the church should take care of the poor. This lady calls up and she says, Neil, you're crazy. You just hate the poor. You hate, I'm like, no, I'm not. And she's just yelling at me. And I said, hang on. She says, well, last week, she says, right? Last week, I went to my hospital and they had the latest technology. They had um, MRI scans. They had, uh, you know, the latest CAT scan equipment. You tell me your church can do that? Maybe in Africa where you were born. I said, ma'am, I have just one question. She goes, what? I said, well, what is the name of your hospital? Long silence. I go, ma'am, please tell me what's the name of your hospital. Long silence. The host starts cracking up because he knows where this is going. Just like you do. And she find, and I said, ma'am, please answer the question. And she says, St. James, but that's not important. <laughs> You see, Christian hospitals are the most advanced. We have the most technology. We have, I said, ma'am, that hospital is founded by a group of Christians. It's probably run by a board, some church. The reason that healthcare is so expensive is because government got involved with paying for it. And it's giving, and you're giving it away for free. So it makes no difference to you how much healthcare you take and it makes no difference to the government how much they pay for it until they get while, they get, while they're looking for a re-election. I said, in fact, Ronald Reagan said, if you want sand to be expensive and hard to get, have the government give it away for free. Why? Because some group will come in and say, well, you can't give up any sand. It has to be government-qualified sand. <laughs> no, two. Government organizations, as hard as they work, can never be as efficient as churches. Here's a local example. Here, a few uh, years ago, I got this in the mail, and we are a supporter of uh, this organization, City Team. City team put this out. It says cost between the city between forty thousand and sixty thousand to care for a homeless person. It costs city team twelve thousand. Join us in city teams plus one campaign. Now, what's important about this is that after they spend the twelve thousand, most cases that homeless person is off the street. And the second thing to be important is uh, that number sixty thousand is wrong. If you go to the San Jose website, it says sixty-seven thousand. See, the church can do most things for one-fifth to one-sixth the cost the government does. Why? Because we do a better job, and we are more invested in it, and it costs us less. You don't see church volunteers being paid, you know, what, $30, $40 an hour with pensions, right? So it's actually, if you think about it, it's actually unloving. Next slide. If 
unloving to let the government continue to be in the business of charity when we could help two to five times the number of needy people with the same amount of money. But we can't get there now. Why can't we get there now? Because people will be dying in the streets. We can't just stop everything, right? The church must take back its leadership, and it must resume its proper role. So I've been advocating that the government gives us two times the tax. If you give money to a, a group like City Team that takes care of the poor, you should get twice the tax deduction. I was traveling the state of Kansas with uh, the governor of Kansas in 2014, and I made that pitch to all the legislators who I had a chance to meet with. Now you go, wait a minute, Neil, that, that's all fine, but the, I mean, come on, our, our annual budget, the federal budget for taking care of the poor is $1.2 trillion. $1.2 trillion. You think the church can come up with $1.2 trillion? No, I don't think they need to. I think they only need to come up with about $200 or $250 billion. You go, $250 billion, that's still a lot of money. No, it actually isn't, because you know what? Last year, the Christians and the church and conservatives gave over $300 billion to the poor. Okay, in fact, that's nine times more than the next closest country, the socialist country of Germany, and 11 times closer than more than the uh, next country. And I don't mean not amount in money. Again, next slide. I don't mean amount in cash. Yeah, go ahead, next slide. I don't mean the amount of money cash. I'm talking per GDP. That's based on each person's earnings. We give the most amount of money to every individual group. So the church can do this. And more than that, what's important is it's important to evangelism because socialism hurts evangelism, right? For instance, every time socialism limits, next slide, limits the opportunity to spread the gospel because it takes away something that is the role of the church and makes it the role of government. Next slide. So every time the government meets somebody's physical needs, the church has lost an opportunity to witness and show Christ's love to that person. We can't let the government take over. In fact, if you look at the socialist countries, the church is dead in those socialist countries. Why? Because nobody really wants to listen to you if you're just a bunch of rules. Why should I go to church? It's just a bunch of rules. But if the church is seen as, a, as, as a, the source of compassion and the source of guidance, then it all works. Okay. But again, after all this goes, guys, remember this. Charity will never take somebody out of poverty. All it will do is alleviate their current state and make sure they don't die. The only thing that takes care of people out of poverty is capitalism. Uh, and here's Bono. Those of you who know the U2 singer, he was running around the country, uh, the world, trying to convince people to either give more money or forgive debts. And he finally figured out that capitalism takes more people out of poverty than aid. Why? Because it's the only thing that causes other people around you to what? To gain wealth. Because for you to gain wealth, other people need to gain wealth. Now, don't confuse capitalism with crony capitalism. Crony capitalism is when some big rich guy goes to the government and says, don't let anybody else in this market and pass all these laws so I can be the only person in this market. That's crony capitalism. And that violates rights. In fact, if you look at it, the, in the trillions of dollars that we spent in uh, charity, next slide, in, in the U.S. giving, the rate of the poverty level has not really changed much. In fact, it's always been about the same. We're not improving the poverty situation. Though we spent trillions and trillions of dollars. Okay, let's go, go quickly here. What is the job of politicians? Anybody know? What's the job of politicians? To be elected, right? I've heard all the answers. But the real job of politicians is what? To make laws, right? They're supposed to make laws. Now, why is there a law? Law is there for a purpose, right? Now, if you go out there, you see a stop sign. Is that stop sign there because the city tra planners didn't want you to have fun? No. Why is the stop sign there? To protect you, right? So, next slide. So, whoops. Keep going. Next one, there, to protect us. Now, let me ask you this. If 
the city laws, the man's laws are there to protect us. Why is God's laws theirs? there? Why did God give us those laws? To protect us. Same reason, exactly the same reason. Next slide. So the more we follow God's laws, the happier, healthier, safer, mutually prosperous we'll be. Now think about this. What if we violate God's laws? Let's say we pass a law that violates God's laws. What will happen to our nation? We will suffer, right? And we'll see the consequences of suffering. So next slide. Let's look at one set of laws. I want to go through this. God revealed laws about divorce and family. And as I talk about divorce and family, I want to be very careful here. I'm not condemning anyone. Okay, I'm not condemning anyone who's had a divorce. We are. We live in a in a sinful world, right? The Bible has prescribed reasons why divorce is permissible. Unfortunately, in 1969, California was the first state by a good governor who did a bad thing. He passed a law allowing what? No fault divorce. As a result of that, it spread across the country and no fault divorce. Now, before you can only get divorced for biblical reasons, now you could get divorced for any reason or no reason. You just didn't feel like being married. It was there. But why did God say He doesn't want like divorce? Well, let's look at why. Um, Christians from broken homes account for 29% of all kids. So if you, if you look at the, uh, if you look at the statistics, that 29% of all kids come from broken homes. It's gone up a bit. I think it's about 31 or something now. Okay, but they account for, and you just guys can just click through this for me. They account for 70% of all long-term prison inmates. Keep going. 60% of rapists. 75% of teen, just keep going. I'll, I'll read them as they come. 70% of violent criminals. 80% of those motivated by displaced anger, 75% of all juvenile criminals, and they're 40 times more likely to suffer child abuse. Okay, now remember, they're 30% of the population, and yet they are 70%, 60% of rapists. Now, understand, this does not mean that you came from a broken home, you're going to be a rapist, okay? This is called statistical analysis, right? I had a, I had a liberal friend go and says, well, I was born in a broken home. You see me being a rapist? I have to say, have you ever heard of statistics? Apparently not. You know, 10% of people don't understand statistics. He didn't like that. Anyway, okay. So children from broken homes are what? Uh, keep going. Just click all through them. It's three times more likely to fail in school. Three times more likely to require psychiatric treatment. Three times more likely to commit suicide. Twice as likely to end up in jail. Twice as likely to be a juvenile delinquent. And twice as likely to be a pregnant as a teen. Next slide. In fact, if you come from a broken home, you have more chance of being in poverty. Next one. In fact, it turns out that 80% of all kids, next, uh, 80% of all kids would be out of poverty if their parents had been married or stayed married. Now, and what's worse, it's a self-spiring cycle. Next slide. Children of divorced parents are 200% or twice as likely to divorce when they are divorced adults. Now, look at our $1.2 trillion in costs for taking care of the poor. And now look at the costs not included in there for crime and violence and all that. And now ask yourself, do, does this country have a government welfare issue or do we have a moral law? But who, are make, who is making our moral laws? Not Christians. Or not Christians who understand God's laws. The church's task is not simply to bind the wounds of the victim between, beneath the wheel, but also to break the wheel itself. Guys know who, you guys know who Bonhoeffer was? He was the guy who, who tried to fight Hitler in Germany. He was, a, he was probably one of the few pastors in Germany who fought the Nazis. I was once teaching this class, and a young girl shot up her hand, and she said... Uh, well, Neil, this is all nice and good, but Jesus didn't get involved in politics. He didn't try to change the laws of Rome. He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. If Jesus didn't do it, then we should not do it. And the crowd goes silent. Like, 
And I thought I was doing well until then. And that's when I decided I got to write this book. So, first of all, just because Jesus didn't do something, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. Jesus didn't fight against racism or slavery, right? Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. But if he did do something, that maybe we should do it. So when somebody says that Jesus didn't get involved in politics, next slide, this means it's a, this is actually false and a misunderstanding of history. The idea that Jesus didn't get involved in politics is just because most people haven't understood the political structure. Now, yes, the, the Jews were under Roman governorship, right? Just like Iraq was under U.S. governorship. But the Jews were not Romans. Jesus, was he a Roman citizen? No. So he couldn't go to Rome and change the laws as, as much as an Iraqi citizen when we were governing Iraq could come here and change the laws, right? Yeah, there's no connection. But did Jesus have his own laws? The Romans actually gave Jews their own control over their local laws, just like we gave the Iraqis, not only in, in uh, recent years, but also after World War I, uh, World War II, and, World, and in Japan. They had their own local politicians. They made their own laws. In fact, the Jews had that. They had a Senate. They had a group of people who made their law. They had their own prisons. They had their own jails. They had, remember, Paul and Silas was thrown into a Jewish prison, right? They had their own policemen, if you will, right? They had their whole, whole economic, their whole political structure already. And all the Romans did was govern at the top and collect taxes, right? Their job was keep you peaceful, give us your money, right? That was the whole basis. So back to Jesus, okay? He was a Jewish citizen. Did he have representatives? Did he have senators? Well, he did. He had people who made the law. But you go, wait a minute. They, how could they make the law? They had the, the Jewish law. No, no, no. The Jewish law was their Torah. That was their constitution, just like we have a constitution. But they could make all the lesser laws like we're supposed to make our lesser laws. And you know who the body of people who made these laws were? Next slide. This body was called the Sanhedrin. You guys remember these guys? Next slide. Who were the Sanhedrin according to history? The Sanhedrin sitting together, hence assembly, is the name given to the council of 71 Jewish sages who constituted the Supreme Court and legislative body. That means they were both the court and the people who made the laws of ancient Israel, right? Now, here's what they did. They would sit around and they would pass laws, daily, regular laws that they needed. And they were doing that maybe too much. And by the way, who were the members of the Sanhedrin? Who were the people that Jesus would have to talk to if he wanted to change the laws, if he wanted to argue about the laws, if he wanted to complain the laws? You know who these guys' names were? Next slide. Their names were what? The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And now you go, oh my gosh, he was talking to his politicians every single day. In fact, remember when I said this, the Samaritan was helped, the guy that two politicians didn't help? Those are those guys. He was talking to them all the time. Now you, can, you may have an argument that he didn't talk nicely to them. Because he said, you dirty, stinking vipers, rotting graves, who will save you from hell? But I think he talked nice to them because he, the, the, the very gospel was preached to a politician, Nicodemus, right? John 3.16. Every single, in fact, what's important about this is also Jesus was what we call a strict constructionist. A strict constructionist says, go back to the original intent of the law, right? He, remember, he goes to the Pharisees and he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Go back to the original intent of the Sabbath law. They made all these new laws. 
that had nothing to do with what the original law was. It was only to benefit themselves. And I go, well, okay, that's fine. So maybe Jesus did get involved in politics. In fact, our Republican form of government, the, the semicircle, all founded on the Bible, right? All these things are there. But every time, next slide, every time Christians have gotten involved in politics, it has failed. Next one. Uh, it has backfired and never worked. Well, I've heard that so many times, and I always ask him one question. Excuse me, do you know this guy? William Milberforce. Now, William... <laughs> I gotta know that. You will know him now. William Wilberforce was a politician in England. And he said, God does not like slavery. We need to stop slavery. It took 40 years to stop slavery. But it wasn't him alone. It was his church. It was his pastor. Right? It was his actual pastor, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, who was with him constantly to make it happen. And we'll bring, we'll bring that up in just a second too. But here's what Christians have changed, failed, uh, have, have changed. Next slide. Here are all the laws. We can go through all history. In 2,000 years, we've changed thousands of laws because we thought they were against the laws of God. We stopped slavery, racism, segregation, kidnapped brides. In Scandinavia, you could kidnap your bride and force her to marry you. Christians stopped that law. Gladiatorial combat, child labor, death games, infanticide, child marriage, temple prostitution. And this is a small list. There's a huge, bigger list in the book, and there's an even bigger list in history. Go look at it. Thousands of laws. In Africa, they used to kill twins because they thought they were superstitious. Christians changed that law. Now, you tell me Christians should step back and not get involved. You tell me Christians should leave the culture to itself. No. Did you know that in 1776, only 17% of the population went to church? 17%. More people go to church now than did back then. And of course, when people go to church, it doesn't mean they're Christians. And it wasn't just people in the law. It was pastors like John Newton and his church. William Wilberforce would go back and he would consult with John Newton and his pastor would say, no, you've got to do this. You've got to keep on it. For 40 years, Newton was there behind him. The pastors have to get involved and the church has to get involved. They used to meet at this church. It was a hotbed, the center of political activism to change the country for God's laws. Not to elect certain people, but to change the moral code of the country. How many people liked The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings? A few of you, okay. Uh, let me set this up real quick. Uh, we're probably long on time here. Um, uh, when, when they made the book, The Hobbit was written by J.R.L. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, written by him. It was a great book. Uh, the movie, they made the movie Lord of the Rings. It was a great movie. But then they decided to make The Hobbit, which was a very small book. And so they said, well, we want to, we want to make three movies out of it so we don't have enough content, so they created content for it. Usually when horrible Hollywood does something like this, it's horrible, okay? Hollywood horrible, you know, it always happens. But this is one case where they actually they had one scene in this one movie that they created that I thought just was amazingly apt. So you may have to turn up the volume on it. Uh, so what you're about to see in just a second is your, the hobbits are these, um, and the dwarves are these lowly creatures. They're like the normal people. The elves are these uh, almost celestial beings, right? They live forever. Uh, and they they are uh, they have these great huge uh, castles that they live in the forest, and they're just these really powerful beings. Very hard to kill an elf, right? And they are in control of their environment, but they stay away from everything else. And in this clip, what has happened? And you don't see the hobbits or the elves uh, or the dwarfs, but the dwarves and the hobbits have come in, and the orcs, the evil people, 
have snuck into the elves' land and kidnapped the orcs, uh, the, or uh, attacked the dwarves that were in, that were prisoners of the elves. Okay, so they've come into the elf land and they've chased them out. And what you're going to see is a dialogue between two elves about that incident. So hopefully you got it. Let me close with some encouragement. Next slide. There are almost, there are over 60 million evangelical Christians of voting age in America. 60 million who should know the importance of the law and, and God's laws. Yet, with those 60 evangelicals, in most elections, next slide, only 20 million of us vote. So that means 40 million Christians are sitting on the sideline not voting. So if the numbers are right, if you're sitting here, three other people next to you don't vote if you vote. Folks, we can win this battle. We can win this battle if we can get enough people to vote for godly laws and godly purposes. Next slide. Short self-promotion as I close here. Uh, We wrote this book called 40 Days Towards a More Godly Nation. allows you to lead a six-week group, small group, a study group, teaching your Sunday school. Slides are back there. Everything's back there. The notes, the, the study guides in the back of the book. People need to know this and a lot of other things. So... It took me 12 years to get, earn the right to become a U.S. citizen. Okay? I came here, and I had to do all the right stuff, uh, make sure I did everything right, paid all the money. But here's the deal. If this is the greatest nation in the world. I've been through a lot of other nations. I've lived there. This is the greatest nation in the world, and nations die. History is littered with their bones. But if we lose this battle, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those with the most to lose did the least prevent its happening. Ladies and gentlemen, in Oregon last year, a baker was forced to close shop because he felt it was against the laws of nature and nature's God to bake a cake for a same-sex marriage couple. They were bankrupted and fined. Um, All over America, things are happening that are destroying our country, and we can solve it. We can turn it back. Why? Because our kids are at stake. Now, Now, just go through all these. We'll go through this real quick. God is sovereign. But remember, when the children of Israel and Assyria uh, did wrong things, God sent the Assyrians and the Babylonians to do that. And he will do that for us. He will punish us for it. With our freedoms to evangelize being taken away with, from us, will Americans lose the ability to witness? Why? One day in the future, one day in the future, I'm afraid that I will have to tell my daughter that I have, we have to leave our country. Why? Next slide. Because it's illegal to give a Bible to someone in the United States of America. And it's getting there. Folks, just remember this, though. I escaped to come here in some sense of the word. But if we lose freedom here, there is no place to run to. This is the last stand on earth. Thank you.